with that, um, Lewis Hedden is going to be leading us uh, today through reading uh, today's scripture, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and then I'll lead a teaching based uh, on that text, and then as well as uh, lead us into the Lord's Supper. So just a reminder, uh, if you haven't yet, grab a piece of uh, bread or a cracker, a cup of juice or some drink if you uh, plan to partake in communion this morning. Uh, before we move forward, let me just pray for the reading of God's Word and for the rest of this service. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you uh, for uh, this moment in our service, Lord, where we have already come together and lifted our voices to you, God, where we have already uh, been prayed over, Lord, where we have already uh, met you and felt your presence. So, Father, be with us as the service continues. Be with Lewis as he reads from your holy word. Lord, may you be glorified in the reading of these verses. And God, be with me as I teach from this, Lord. Uh, may you humble my heart and may you speak through me. Lord, we pray all of these things. We give this time to you now. We pray it in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Lewis. A reading from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Amen. Thank you, Lewis. Well, my friends, we are here at the end of the second chapter of the book of Acts. Now, I could remind you each and every week of all that we've already experienced in the preceding 67 verses now, uh, but today I just want to say this. So much has happened. Uh, the physical resurrected body of Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven, and the Holy Spirit has descended to God's people. Peter has preached one heck of a sermon that pierced the hearts of about 3,000 people, we're told. And today, this morning, we get to see the tangible, real-life fruit of those changed lives, of those pierced hearts. But the story really isn't just about the fruit in this instance. It's not just about what these particular people did now that they repented and were baptized in the name of Jesus. This is a story of what it means for their lives and the lives that follow and our lives today what it means to be shaped by the Holy Spirit. And though seriously, we could dedicate, I truly believe we could dedicate the rest of our lives unpacking these verses, just these verses. There's so much here. Today, we begin to scratch the surface, and I want us to focus on four phrases. Four phrases. The first comes from verse 42, devoted themselves. And then verse 44, all things in common. Then verse 46, breaking bread, and verse 47, all the people devoted themselves, all things in common, breaking bread, and all the people. So we start there in verse 42, 
with that phrase devoted themselves. Now, everything after this, truly everything in the rest of the book of Acts sort of revolves around this phrase. And we see this very specifically uh, in this verse. We, we see just what those Christians in the first century actually devoted themselves to, right? The teaching of the apostles, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers. This idea of devoting themselves, as Luke is describing here, is, is much more than signing up for a small group or attending church each week or something like that. The way it's written in the Greek, it is emphasizing that word devoted. There is a, a profound emphasis on how we perceive that word devoted. There was an abnormal commitment by these people, a commitment that had never existed before. But even more than that, and this is why we care about the original languages, even more than a serious, unusual, distinct commitment, this word means persevere. If I were to say to you, think about the word devoted, and then I ask, what's another word that comes to mind? What word do you associate with devoted? I don't think we would immediately say persevere. But we might get there because it's not that far off. But I don't think we would immediately think persevere. The Greek word that Luke uses here, proskaterio, means that. It means persevere. We actually see this word in the first chapter of Acts. After Jesus ascends to heaven... And before the Holy Spirit came to earth, if you remember, there's about a period of 10 days. The disciples and the crowd, there was a crowd gathering. They were devoting themselves to prayer. They were persevering in this in-between time through prayer. And then here in verse 42, we see this word used again, that these 3,000 new Christians were continually devoting themselves to those things that are listed. They were continually persisting in these things. This was not just committing to, but persevering through. This is important to note because what this phrase should push us to realize is that this was not an easy thing for this crowd. We don't persevere when life is easy. Carmita ended her prayer asking that we would live with God's power and with God's perseverance. This was more, again, this was more than just new people joining this group after Peter preached. They weren't simply adding Christianity to their lives. This was new people joining a group, a group that stood against their natural tendencies, a group that, as we see in this passage, pushed them to share their wealth and goods and services and lives with one another, a group who God imposed His divine, life-changing love onto, a group that was completely and utterly shaped and changed by the Holy Spirit. And it's just like last week when we saw that the Spirit pierced the hearts of those listening. This was not a happy, necessarily a happy, beautiful, sunshiny moment. It was a painful moment. It was a shocking moment for their hearts to be pierced. And so too is this experience of a life transformed by that piercing. It is hard. It is difficult. It is painful. And so they couldn't simply devote themselves to a, a mantra or to a few new teachers. They had to persevere because this new way of living was going to push them like they had never been pushed before. This new experience truly changed their lives. And in these changed lives, they devote themselves. They devote themselves to teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayers. 
They persevere as they reorient their whole lives in completely new ways. And they do this together as they begin to have all things in common. Our second phrase we're looking at this morning. All things in common, verse 44. We, get a, we actually get a snapshot of this in verse 42 in that word fellowship. The Greek words used in both instances are very close to one another. Koinonia for fellowship and koina for in common. The church, the broad church, I think, you know, the American church, we tend to focus on that first one, koinonia. Some of you have maybe even heard that word before. Uh, maybe you've heard it if this passage has been preached or you've heard it elsewhere. Fellowship. This idea of being in a group of, of friends, sharing in good spirit, sharing in similar faith, sharing in friendship. All these things are true, certainly. But I think too often that's kind of where our minds stop with fellowship. What this word also was used to describe was essentially, as we know it, a corporation or a partnership or a common enterprise. Yes, koinonia is friendship or is fellowship as we know it, right? It is the friendship amongst people. It is what you think of when you hear that word fellowship, but it also means solidarity. It means the sharing of feelings and goods and actions. This idea of a corporation or a partnership or a common enterprise amongst a group of people. And we see this fleshed out more fully in the phrase, all things in common, in koina. Now this group, this group of first century Jews who have been pierced to their hearts and who are devoting their lives to the teaching of the apostles, now this group is unified like never before. Unified in their life stories, unified in their life dreams and hopes, unified in their plans and their purposes. It's not that they all become identical to one another and had no distinct personalities or anything like that. No, it was that their lives and everything in their lives were being taken by the Holy Spirit. Their stories, projects, families, plans, purposes, they were, as Willie James Jennings from Yale puts it, they were intercepted by a new orientation. This is what it meant for them to be in fellowship with one another, to have all things in common. It was that they were collectively being changed and everything they held dear, everything was being changed too. Fellowship, community, it wasn't added to their lives. It changed their lives. You know, I think almost anything in our lives, I think we can actually see glimpses of this community, right? If you've ever played any sort of, you know, sports, uh, team sports in your life, uh, you know that the success of the team is not based on everybody acting the same way and having the exact same skills. Actually, what benefits a team most is for each player, each individual to lean into their own skills, to lean into their distinct position, but all the while working toward one common goal. In your job, if you've ever worked in a team capacity, in an ideal world, in an ideal world, your team is made up of people with different skill sets, different personalities, different traits of genius, and, and all of those differences come together toward a common goal. Uh, as you know, yesterday was the annual Don't Walk By initiative for the west side of Manhattan, where people come together to reach out and care for and help men and women and children who are living on the streets. There were quite a few people who did this yesterday uh, in our neighborhood. A few of you on this call I know uh, were taking part. And this makes me think about this idea of community, where all these random people most of whom were strangers. We all come together for the same purpose, to serve and to love and to care. 
You can think of a number of different examples, I'm sure. But the reality here is that these examples really only represent a portion of your life, only a part of your overall lived experience. A football team, let's say. The fellowship of that team, the common goal of that team does not cover every action you take or every word you say. I would go so far as to say even Tom Brady, who is arguably the greatest football player of all time, greatest quarterback of all time, his life is likely almost completely dictated by that common goal of his team. But I'd venture to say that there are places in his life, his kids, his marriage, where the goal of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers doesn't intercept his orientation toward his children. The fellowship he enjoys with his teammates does not then cover his relationship with his wife. Your job, your team at work, again, though that may truly cover a significant part of your life, there are going to be places where that job, where that team, where they don't go. Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's your social life, whatever it might be. And, and we all know, we all know too well, I know some of you at this very moment know this too well, that more often than not in a work setting, the idea of everyone being committed to the same goal, that idea is very fragile. Someone might get a new job elsewhere. Someone might throw a teammate under the bus for a shot at a promotion. And all of a sudden, a fellowship crumbles. Even don't walk by. The group that I had the privilege of being part of, I was, I was reminded at the end, one of our teammates prayed. And he gave thanks for the fruit of don't walk by. And just as quickly as he gave thanks, he confessed that this fruit was not frequent in his life. You know, for a moment, our lives were bonded together through this common spirit. But far too often, that bond only exists in those sparse volunteer moments. We get good glimpses at fellowship, but we don't see this totality of life being affected by this fellowship, except here. Here with the community of God, here in these verses. Because what did having all things in common lead to? It led to radical generosity. It led to the selling of possessions and belongings, to sharing those things with anyone in need. It led to these thousands of new Christians attending church together, to devoting themselves to prayer together. It led to new ways of being radically generous to neighbors, not as some sacrificial offering to appease this new Christ that these people were now following, but as simply radical generosity because of this new Christ. They weren't trying to appease him. A new kind of giving was being exposed here, a new kind of sacrificing, a new kind of offering because this giving leads to what we see at the end of this passage. The community of God is growing. People are seeing this generosity, this new way of living, and they too are convinced. You know, the giving, the selling, the, dis the distributing of property and resources as, as people were in need, this giving was not to, to make those who were giving feel good. And it certainly wasn't to appease the creator of the universe uh, whose kingdom stretches to the ends of the earth. No, this giving was to contribute to the growth of the community of God's people, to the reflecting of the goodness of this God to these people. The giving that we see here announces this God. It reflects this Holy Spirit. And this giving exists in this completely unique, never-before-seen 
fellowship of men and women and families who had all things in common. And this common thread that bound these people together, this interception of every part of their lives by the Holy Spirit, it was emboldened and strengthened through not just their community together, not just their their fellowship together, but through the breaking of bread together. The third phrase. This is significant because this is mentioned not once in this passage, but twice. First in verse 42, as uh, one of the things that the people are devoting themselves to. And then in verse 46, as it is specifically mentioned in the same breath as attending temple or attending worship together. Yes, these people, these first century Jews, they, they ate meals together. They shared tables. They shared lives over food, but they also communed with one another by partaking in the Lord's Supper. The Greek word used for break in our passage this morning is part of the same word that Matthew uses in his gospel as Jesus institutes communion for his followers, saying in Matthew 26, 26, just as we hear each week, that Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. Jesus literally broke bread with his followers, with his friends, and we are being told to mimic that fellowship, that communion, when we break bread with one another. Uh, There's a church in Chicago, uh, and one of the pastors there, he's a professor, and he's a writer, and he's written a couple of books uh, that have been pretty meaningful to me in my ministry, uh, including really pushing me to see the Lord's table as an opportunity for us to live out what we see here in Acts 2. Not just another ritual or rote group of actions, but actually as an opportunity to come together with friends and strangers, with neighbors, and experience this life-transforming fellowship with one another, and with the Holy Spirit. Uh, the pastor's name is David Fitch, and, and at his church, they, they look at communion in three different ways. The first is as the Lord's table, like what we do each week here at Hope House Kitchen, where followers of Jesus come together to worship and be nourished by the breaking of bread and the drinking of juice. The second table uh, is what he calls the home table where a smaller group of followers of Jesus share a meal together in their home, where they work out their everyday lives, every part of their lives, in light of Jesus Christ being their Lord. Perhaps friends and neighbors join at this home table on occasion. And the third table is what Fitch refers to as the guest table, which is where followers of Jesus are sent into places as guests, not as hosts, but as guests, not seeking control, but to discern, to try and see what the Holy Spirit is already doing there and to join in on that work. This happens anywhere you might regularly find yourself, at a break room, in the office, at a bar, at a cafe, whatever. Now, all three of these tables are completely changed because of COVID and health restrictions, but I don't think any of them disappear. We still gather around the Lord's table virtually each week. You can still bring people to your home table, if not physically, through Zoom, just like we do at church. As the weather gets nicer, you can do this outside. You can still be a guest and join the Spirit at work, though it may not be inside a restaurant. It might be out in the park. It might be on the sidewalk. It might be in other places but you have the opportunity to not be in control and to be a guest. In other words, regardless of restrictions, 
regardless of new ways of life, we can still break bread together as we hold all things in common. Or we can strive to do this. And we can strive to do this as we persevere in our devotion to these things. And we do this, my friends, we do this at least in part, at least in part, so that the world sees. I've already mentioned this, that the the selling and giving of possessions and the caring for one another, these things were witnessed by others and the church grew. The community of God grew. The Lord added to their number day by day, we're told. But I'd say perhaps even greater than that is the detail we see right before that last sentence in our passage. That these people who were pierced to the hearts and who were now in this life-changing fellowship, these men and women had favor with all people. The last phrase uh, I want us to consider briefly this morning. All people. They had favor with all people. That is a pretty beautiful picture. To consider this group of new Christians, this, this first group of Christians really, allowing their lives to come together with one another, shedding any greedy desires to hoard property or earn money, and instead consider how they can share their resources and their time and their spirits and their love and their possessions with anyone who is in need. And they continue to worship together and they continue to commune together. They continue to share meals together. And as they praised God, they found favor with all the people around them, with all those who are watching, both on the inside of their community and on the outside, with all the people. And this favor led to the growth of the church. Now, it's not that this was the why for these people. This wasn't why they were doing it. This passage doesn't start out, in order to find favor with all the people, this group devoted themselves to these things. No, this is a result of a life of persevering, spirit-led devotion. Through their radical new way of living, through their radical devotion to worshiping this God, through their radical generosity toward those in need, this group was evangelistic. They weren't trying to argue anyone into joining. They weren't intellectually reasoning with people. They were praising God. They were persevering in their lives, and the world was watching and taking notice. Jennings says about this passage, What is far more dangerous than any plan of shared wealth or fair distribution of goods and services is a God who dares impose on us divine love. Such love will not play fair. In the moment we think something is ours or our people's, that same God will demand we sell it, give it away, or offer more of it in order to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, or shelter the homeless using it to create the bonds of shared life. This will be the new direction born of this moment. You can see why I like Willie James Jennings. The moment we think something is ours, God will demand we sell it or give it away. He will demand we feed the hungry and shelter the homeless. This, this will be the new direction born in this moment and the world will see it. And at least for a brief, beautiful, incredible moment, the world will see it and this community will have favor with all the people. In the contemporary English version translation of the Bible, one that I don't read too often, but I was looking at it this week, it simply and beautifully says, everyone like them. Not holding favor, it says everyone liked them. 
We know this idea of universal favor, though, of everyone liking them. We know it's far from reality today. And here in Acts, actually, in the upcoming few chapters, we will see this favor disappear. We'll see it disappear through outside opposition. We'll see it disappear through internal conflict. But when this happens, and this is why we went in order, when this happens, the perseverance of God will be more needed than ever. It's more needed than ever for us, for you and me, for Hope Hell's Kitchen today. My friends, I want to ask you to think about these four phrases, but perhaps most importantly, or most foundationally, to think about the first phrase. What would it look like for you to devote your entire life to the work of the Holy Spirit? It doesn't mean you need to quit your job or become a pastor. Actually, I think it means quite the opposite for many of you. How are you reflecting the power of the Holy Spirit in your job, wherever God has called you? How are you reflecting the power of the Holy Spirit in your relationships, in your families, in your personal, private lives? What would it look like for you to devote every aspect of your life, not just Sunday morning? What would this perseverance look like for you? In other words, just as we asked last week, what shall we do in response to all of this? It's not a question I think we can answer overnight. It's a question that must shape us each and every day. What shall we do? How will we devote our lives to this revolution that is taking place? We get an idea of what it could look like in this passage. And at this moment, we're going to attempt to answer the question, what does this persevering, persisting devotion look like as we come together for the Lord's Supper, as we come together to break bread? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that before you ever approach the altar, before you ever make an offering in your worship to God, if there is an unreconciled relationship in your life, go and seek reconciliation and then come back. Though he said those words before he broke bread with his disciples for the final time, giving us communion as we know it today, those words hold true for this time too. The Apostle Paul makes this connection and shares much more convicting insight in the book of 1 Corinthians as he exhorts his readers to approach the Lord's table in a worthy manner. This table, even virtually via Zoom, this table holds a lot of power. It not only reminds us of the sacrifice of Christ's life on the cross, but it points us to, to his defeat and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven, where today he sits at the right hand of God our Father. And it compels us to look to tomorrow, to consider how our lives are changed because of this Lordship. In other words, when we come to this table, though we are imperfect, though we are flawed, though we are sinners, we are reminded of our reconciliation with God through Christ and truly with one another through Christ, all in the act of breaking bread. In Colossians, we're told that we were once alienated from God, but because of Christ, we have been reconciled. This table is Christ's table. Thus, it is a table of reconciliation. I pose the question, how might your life change if you devoted yourselves in the, in the ways that we see in this morning's passage from Acts 2? Because what we know today, because we know what we know today, we know that this first century group of believers, this new fellowship, this new community, it was one that broke bread together. Thus, it was a community of reconciliation. 
as we keep that question in our minds and in our hearts, as we strive to let it change us and shape us, may we, may we begin to experience the answer to that question this morning here, breaking bread at this table, just like those Christians 2,000 years ago experienced together. So as we approach this table, as we come to this time, we do so striving to do it in a worthy manner. We're going to take a moment to pause and reflect, to offer up our own personal confessions and repentance to God, to consider the unreconciled relationships in our lives and to give those to God and commit to seeking reconciliation. John Perkins defines reconciliation as simply the removal of tension between parties and the restoration of loving relationship. He calls reconciliation a glimpse of heaven in our midst. There's no perfect way to do this. And there's no perfect way to even reflect on this and to enter into this time of silence. Every single one of you will do it in your own way, but know that we are coming to this table together and we are lifting these things up to God, to the same God, to this God that we are reconciled to through Christ. In the sermon, I shared a quote from uh, Willie James Jennings, and so I'm going to put that up on the screen uh, for this time. It's only meant to be used uh, if you need help clearing your thoughts, if you need help centering yourself, but whatever, whatever you need to do, uh, use this time as an opportunity to prepare for the table together.